After the proclamation of God's word this morning, we will sing together from Psalm 31, stanzas 3, 5, and 11, following the sermon. Sermon, as was mentioned, our text is found in the full chapter we read from earlier, 1 Samuel 18. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the context of 1 Samuel, our text this morning is giving us the account of David immediately following his defeat of Goliath the giant and the resulting victory that Israel experienced over the Philistines. And you can just imagine the kind of news coverage and the headlines that would have stemmed from this story. Here was a young man, an unknown man from a small town, nearly an unknown town, and in one day becoming a national hero. And because of one stone's throw, in an instant, he was catapulted from a life of obscurity into a life of celebrity. And having been thrust into the spotlight so Suddenly, as is often the case, his life in many ways becomes radically changed and it brings a combination of of great success but also great sorrow. And so in our text today, we'll start to see some of the the effects or the spin-offs or the repercussions, the waves of his new found fame by considering some of the first reactions to David's rise. But before we get into that, there's something important that we must remember. That is, that the reader of 1 Samuel, who's reading through the book, coming to this point, knows something that nearly nobody here in chapter 18 knew. Saul didn't know. Jonathan didn't know it. Saul's servants didn't know it. The women of Israel don't know it. It's a secret that only Samuel and David, perhaps the members of David's house, were aware of and which the reader also knows because of what took place back in chapter 16 that David was God's anointed. He had been anointed. That means he had been Christed. He had been Messiahed. David is someone who serves as a representative, or to use the theological term, a type of Jesus Christ, the one who was to come, the promised savior and king of God's people. And so as we read this account with that understanding informing our minds, then we will be better able to see how this story fits into the the broader story of the Bible and what it teaches us about the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. So I preach God's word to you this morning under the following theme. No one is neutral towards the Lord's anointed one. We'll see first the anointed one received, secondly the anointed one resisted. Well, the first thing that we see after David defeated Goliath at the end of chapter 17 at verse 55 and following is that King Saul, together with Abner, the commander of his army, inquire who was the young man who was able to kill their giant enemy. 
And so David is, is hauled before Saul. He's brought before Saul and asked to introduce himself to them. And, and we might wonder why this was necessary since we might wonder, didn't Saul know David already? Since David had already been summoned to serve in the king's court and play his instrument to soothe the king's unruly mind. But the answer to that question is that it's quite possible that Saul did not know who David was for he, that he thought of David's music as nothing more than white noise or, or elevator music. But if we look closely at the question that Saul and Abner ask him, we see that their question is not, who are you, but whose son are you? The question appears to be focused more upon which family David was from. After all, Saul had promised that the one who defeated Goliath would join his household and his family would be exempted from paying taxes in Israel. And so Saul may only have been thinking here about how he would honor his promise, how he would honor his commitment to reward this warrior for his military achievement. But as we discover in verse 1 of chapter 18, someone else was, was tuned in to that conversation. For the text says, as soon as David had finished speaking with Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So unlike his father, Jonathan sees something special in David. For no doubt, Jonathan would have heard from David's testimony in the previous chapter where David attributed the victory to the Lord. And Jonathan, as a believer himself, who trusted in the Lord and who had done great achievements in the Lord's name in times past, would have immediately identified with David as a fellow believer and therefore a kindred spirit. And so there is this strong attachment between Jonathan and David, far from being anything sexual related as some commentators have, have perversely tried to impose on the text. This was just a close friendship struck up between David and Jonathan. And this was all the more remarkable for a couple of reasons. For if you dig into it, you'll discover that Jonathan was much older than David. It might surprise some of us to hear that, that Jonathan was much older than David. For at the, at the time that Saul became king, Jonathan was already a warrior, meaning that he was about, or at least 20 years old when his father became king. And we know that his father reigned for 40 years, and that David was 30 when he became king. So that means David was born in the 10th year of Saul's reign when Jonathan was already a man of war who had been involved in Philistine conflicts within Israel. So by the time that we read about Jonathan and David, here David is about 20 and Jonathan is probably pushing 50 at least. So Jonathan was the older man, the, the senior in that society. He, he would, and you would expect the, the younger man to have to defer to the older man. 
but we see that it's the other way around. Jonathan was, of course, also the, the crown prince, the heir apparent, second to the throne. For that's how monarchies work, going from generation to generation. So if anyone would have had the most reason for resentment and jealousy towards David, it would have been Jonathan. He had the most to lose to David. But Jonathan's attitude is remarkable toward David. It's totally different from what we would expect. And that's because Jonathan was not fixated on on worldly aims and worldly achievements He was not after his own riches or his own reputation or his own honor. He was far more concerned with spiritual values. That's the only explanation for why Jonathan, in making a covenant with David, gives up his his royal robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. In doing this, Jonathan and David not only pledged their loyalty and, and allegiance for one another, but, but Jonathan virtually abdicates the throne that he was entitled to receive. And this is even more astounding when we realize that he did not know anything, so we know, about David's anointing. So what's happening here? Well, what we see here in Jonathan is a picture of what it means to live by faith and not by sight. Jonathan was looking at someone who was 30 years, perhaps his junior, just a young man, but he doesn't see him as a rival, but as a brother. And he sees in David every bit the king that his father was not. And so he aligns with David and he demonstrates an amazing display of grace and, and the humility of faith. As one commentator describes it, only faith that makes us, it's only faith that makes us willing to take the possession of, position of the lesser. Only by faith can we take the lower road, the path of humility, and give up everything for the sake of the Lord's anointed. And there are a few lessons for us, brothers and sisters, in this, I think, as it relates to the communion of saints. David and Jonathan were not even close in age, in experiences, or in background. Their common bond, the the glue that held them together was their common faith and trust in the Lord. What was most precious to them above all else was not their work, not their skill or their ability to fight, not their hobbies or their interests. It was that their hearts were centered on the Lord and on his kingdom, This is the same glue that holds all believers together. It's the same glue that holds all believers, young and old, married or not, regardless of ethnic background, regardless of social standing, regardless of popularity, regardless of education or experience or gifts. Believers are united by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then it would make sense 
wouldn't it, for that to be the most common topic of our conversations, wouldn't it? And everything else we touch upon would always relate back to that. Whether that be our work or our business or our schooling or our recreation or our vacations or our choices of entertainment, it all ties back to our faith and how in all these things, whether eating or drinking or whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. God has given to each of us different gifts, not for us to become proud or to look down at each other or to look at each other with envy and resentment, as if to say, I wish I had what, what he or she has. But God has given to us various gifts so that we may rejoice in all the ways that God has blessed us to serve one another. And so as Jonathan illustrates, where sin would have made enemies, faith made brothers. How true that should be also for the church today. And what Jonathan also demonstrates is that when our hearts are gripped by what God is doing in this world, then our resources will also follow. That is to say that when we are filled with wonder at what the Lord is doing throughout the world, through the church, through the ministry of the gospel, in the lives of believers here or on the mission fields far away, as the Spirit transforms hearts and lives so that people come to know Jesus Christ and know what living for him entails, then we will also want to participate in that work by our voluntary giving toward that work, whether that be here in the local church or for kingdom causes further abroad. Our life becomes much more than about seeking our own interests, our own satisfaction, our own self-pleasure, but instead God's glory becomes of central importance to all we do and nothing can budge it from its place. We want his glory spread, spread not only through our, our words and our prayers, but also through our financial contributions and our giving. In doing so, we follow the example of Jonathan, who voluntarily supplied for David what he was lacking. So Jonathan shows us the way of love, the way of faithfulness, the way of commitment. One commentator put it this way, when someone is in a predicament, we love one another by reaching out with help and strength precisely where they are vulnerable and weak. To those who are discouraged, love gives encouragement. To those who are wayward, love gives kind, biblical, loving counsel. To those who are living under the strain of life, love gives encouragement and practical help. To those who are broken in suffering, love gives compassion and tears. That is the love embodied by Jonathan, a love that, display, that he displays to the, to the day of his death, even at considerable risk and cost to himself. And so what is love dictating you, brothers and sisters, to be doing
visiting the elderly and the shut-ins, evangelizing your neighbor, sacrificing your personal time and money to be connected with brothers and sisters in the congregation where you can give and receive biblical encouragement. So Jonathan gives us a model for how a believer is knit in the bond of covenant faith with Jesus Christ. For saving faith does not merely involve assenting to truths regarding Jesus Christ, but it includes our total allegiance and our surrender of our will and our resources to his sovereign rule. And how much more worthy is the Lord Jesus Christ of our covenant fidelity and love than David was? And how much more blessed will our fellowship with him be, not only for this life, but also for eternity to come? We come now to our second point, looking at how the anointed one was resisted. The repeated positive reactions to David's rising success serve as a common refrain in our text. Don't know if you noticed it, but six times within the course of this chapter, we are told of love for David. It comes from Jonathan in verses 1 and 3. Love from all Israel and Judah in verse 16. Love from Saul's servants in verse 22. And finally from Michael, Saul's daughter in verses 20 and 28. In short, everybody seemed to love David. Everybody except for Saul. Saul's attitude towards David was one of envy and jealousy. And we learn that this was triggered by the song of the women that we find in in verses six and seven. The song was probably intended well. It was not intended as a a put down of Saul, but rather a celebration of of what both Saul and David had done, their exploits. But Saul, rather than share in the rejoicing, He interprets this song in the worst way, as a slight against him, and so he becomes very angry, we learn in verse 6. Perhaps here a, a sidebar lesson for us is to always carefully examine and evaluate and double check the words of the songs that we sing or that we listen to at home or at church or anywhere. We are to be a people who practice discernment so that we do what is noble and true and right and pure and admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, as Paul writes to the Philippians but what we, what, we, what we can see, how the, the song of the women here was not a song of faith. We can say as much. For it glorifies people while there is no mention of God or no praise for him. Even though the victory of the last chapter over Goliath was all due to him. The victory belonged to God. But that's all an aside. Looking at Saul, 
we see that his hostility towards David only grows, it only increases. We read in verse 10 that a harmful spirit rushed upon him one day so that while David was playing his lyre, uh, some kind of a guitar uh, preform of it, it, playing it in Saul's presence, Saul becomes filled with murderous intent and not once, but, but twice, he hurls his spear at David, trying to kill him, but David evades him both times. Now, even to this point, it is unclear that David even realized that Saul had it out for him. Now, you might wonder, how could he not see that if he had two spears thrown in his direction? But it is very possible that David could have simply chalked this up to the king being in another one of his moods, his mood swings, his disturbed mind, having another outburst to add to his previous outbursts. Besides, for this experienced soldier Saul to miss David twice in a row just goes to show that when King Saul has a bad day, he's really having a bad day. So David doesn't seem to show any fear of Saul at this particular point. Instead, he simply continues to do what he was given to do. And so Saul takes advantage of this by putting David in charge of some troops so that the law of averages can take care of him. But even worse than the spears that were missed, this idea backfires on Saul. For David not only survives, but he also has great success against his enemies. And all the people all over the land become head over heels for David as a result. And so Saul resorts then to more subtle schemes. In verse 17, he proposes to give his daughter to Merib, his daughter Merib to David to honor the commitment that he made to the one who would kill Goliath. And so he tells David that she will be his if he will fight bravely and valiantly the Lord's battles against the Philistines. But we realize here that Saul is not interested so much in planning a wedding as much as he was hoping to plan a funeral. For his thinking was simply... If I can get the Philistines to do my dirty work, then I can keep my hands clean. But again, Saul's devious plans fail and fall apart. For David's, David answers with great humility that he does not deserve, from, from coming from such a lowly family, he doesn't deserve to marry such a princess. And as a result, Saul reconsiders his plan and perhaps in an attempt to drive a dagger into David's heart, he instead marries Merib, his daughter, off to another man just to make it sting. But Saul has another daughter, Michael, and he learns from his servants that she was in love with David. And so Saul proposes to David that he take her as his wife for the small price of inflicting a little bit of vengeance on Saul's enemies. 
If David can return with the bride price of a hundred Philistine foreskins, then Michael will be his. Now the task sounds cruel, and indeed it is. We might cringe when we hear it, but cruelties happen on the battlefield. We know Egyptians cut off hands and and Assyrians cut off heads of their enemies. Well, Saul Saul simply wanted proof that these Philistines were dead. But really underneath that was the false pretense that Saul was not really interested so much in dead Philistines. What he wanted was a dead David. But David takes Saul up on his offer and thinking that a hundred dead Philistines was not enough, he instead kills 200. And before the appointed deadline had come, he gave to Saul what he requested, full package. And so he could marry Michael. After all of these efforts failed, maybe if Saul had been in his right mind, he would have collected his senses and and given up. But as this story unfolds from here, we know that Saul's plotting and planning was only getting started and would only become more prominent and more openly hostile going forward in the chapters to come. And so in in the transition from chapter 17 to chapter 18, we see that David had only moved from one battlefield to another. No longer is his opponent a, a towering, taunting Philistine named Goliath. No, now the one challenging him is someone who claimed to be on David's side someone who claimed to be on the Lord's side. But over and over again in the chapter, David dodges all the traps that were placed on his path. Was this because David was so agile, so deft at maneuvering that he could get around all of these tricky scenarios? Was it because David was so clever that he could outfox the fox that Saul had become? Well, our text gives us a different answer. Our text uh, tells us in that, in that short but so important phrase repeated in verses 12 and 14 and 28 that the Lord was with him. David's secret to successfully evading Saul was the same secret for successfully defeating Goliath. The Lord was with him. It's as Paul would say, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so each time again in this chapter, potential disaster turns into more good favor for David Every time the exact reverse of what Saul had intended is what happens. The hand, the same hand of God, which made David's stone hit Goliath right where it needed to, also makes the spear miss on two occasions and makes the Philistines unsuccessful against David because the Lord was with him. David was safe and protected. So as we 
consider this chapter as a whole, what we can discover is that as soon as the anointed one comes on the scene, he immediately draws a response from everyone. Either he is loved or he is hated. In the same way, when we are introduced to the great son of David who came at Christmas Day, the first day of, first Christmas Day, later on, the ultimate anointed one, Jesus Christ, we are confronted with the same question of whether we love him or hate him. Will we give our loyalty and our allegiance to him or not? Now, a few of us here, I imagine, would say that we would never take Saul's side on this question. After all, Saul opposed the Lord's anointed. But if our eyes have been opened, then we will see that Saul's reaction is our reaction by nature. When we don't want our personal goals and our personal wishes and our personal autonomy restricted by submitting to God's anointed and God's anointed his commands, if we don't want to surrender our will entirely to God's will, when we are more interested in our own little kingdoms we are building than in his all-supreme kingdom, and when we are more when we care more about our own name and our own reputation than hallowing his name, then have we not become just like Saul? We're saying by our actions more than we would like to admit, I'm with Saul. That's pretty humbling when you think about it. And even if we think we are on the side of those who love the Lord's anointed, we know that that too can be deceiving. For in a later episode of David's life, the love and commitment that Michael shows here turns cold towards him. And, she, and Michael would despise David in her heart. Same goes for the people of Israel and Judah who were first drawn to David as, they, as we see in this chapter. They would later become infatuated with Absalom, David's son, and follow him instead of David. And it would be like that also in the life of Jesus. So many people were willing to follow him until he wouldn't do what they wanted him to do to deliver them from the Romans. And until he began to tell them hard things, for he would say to them, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so the crowds left him. And so 
it was that the popularity of the Lord Jesus gave way to rejection and ultimately crucifixion on the cross. And so the question for us to ask ourselves this morning is, to whom have you given the loyalty of your hearts? Have you given it to the one who will take away your personal autonomy by calling you to submit to his authority and to submit to his will in every part of your life? Or will we resist him and increasingly become more and more diminished people until we are only fragments of our former self and we find ourselves excluded from God's presence? We cannot be neutral. And so by God's grace, may our love be genuine like, da- like Jonathan's so that we are knit to the great son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we see him by faith and love him for who he truly is, so that we offer everything we have and everything we are for him and for his kingdom. Amen.